Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the story of Joseph. So I thought we would just read the whole story together. If you've ever read the story of Joseph, it's uh, Genesis 37 to Genesis 50. Does that sound good? Yeah, um, we're not going to do that, but you should do that. Uh, Before the Super Bowl starts, I already see some teams being claimed in the sanctuary this morning. Um, But read that story. It's a great story. Instead, we're going to watch a short video uh, recapping it for us. So Jacob goes on from there to have 12 sons, big family. But Jacob loves his 11th son, Joseph, way more than all the others. And so he gives him the special technicolor dream coat. And his brothers, because of this, come to hate him. So much so that they plan on killing him. But they don't. They instead just sell him as a slave down in Egypt. Now, while in Egypt, through this crazy series of events, Joseph goes from being in a prison cell to becoming the second in command there. And so later on, the the whole Middle East falls into this food shortage. And Joseph's brothers, they come down to Egypt looking for food. And then when they get there, who should they find as the ruler of the whole land? It's Joseph, that guy they sold into slavery. But he actually saves them from starving to death. And so here you have it. These are the great-grandchildren of Abraham who have done this heinous act to their brother, But God has transformed their evil into something good. And that's exactly what Joseph says here in the last paragraph of the entire book. He says, you guys planned all of this for evil, but God planned it for good to save people's lives. Great. So we are currently in a series called Jesus and the Old Testament. And we've heard about how Jesus is the true and better Adam, Abraham, and Jacob. And this week, I was telling a student about what this series was about, and she said, but wait, Jesus, he's not in the, New Test- or the Old Testament, Amanda. He's only in the New Testament, right? And it was a good conversation for us to have because I realized that we have to challenge our own mental categories of the Bible. So I hope so far this series has been a helpful way for you to peel back our own understanding of the Old and New Testament and reframe Jesus in the actual grand narrative of all of Scripture. The video we watched, it ended at the point where we're headed this morning. The story of Joseph, it ends with him and his brothers and their fully restored relationships. Joseph declares that what they meant for evil, God used for good. And the same is true for Jesus. We'll look at the narrative of Joseph as a highlighting story of someone who was a hero, but more so to see how Jesus surpasses Joseph in every aspect. First things first, let's pray together this morning. God, we recognize that this space, this time, is not our own. It is your time. It is your space. So would you speak to us in a way that only you can? May we return to you this morning as our first love. Holy Spirit, may you captivate us anew this morning. Amen. Now, I want us to get ourselves situated with the Bible. So would you pull out your Bible in front of you or an app? Some of you might see some post-it notes already in there or the one that Marilyn Bransford perfectly put in your bulletin this morning. And here's what it's going to be used for. It's just a placeholder. So open up to Romans 8. It's on page 944 in your pew Bible. And I want you to stick that post-it note on that page to hold our place. I'm guessing you're going to be taking notes on the other side, so we need to have our hands free. 
uh, put that post-it note there, and then flip to page 44, which is Genesis 50, specifically verse 16. And we'll keep ourselves at Genesis 50, and then we'll flip back um, to Romans 8 in a little bit. So this is the plan, and I just want us to be ready with our Bibles open. Uh, This week, as I dove into Genesis, I was overwhelmed at the connections that were big or small between Joseph and Jesus. I could have written just an entire sermon going back and forth in the text, and I started to. Honestly, my my first outline was two pages long of just jumping back and forth between Genesis and the New Testament, and it would have been about 20 minutes of me just rattling off facts to you. Um, Instead of 20 minutes, it's just going to be two minutes, okay? Brace yourself. And I just want to give you a highlight reel of several parallels between Joseph and Jesus, and then we're going to dive deep just into one or two. And they'll be on the screens as well. Joseph was a shepherd, and he was dearly loved by his father, while Jesus is the good shepherd, beloved by his father. Joseph's dreams tell of a future dominion, which no one believed and everyone hates him for while Jesus speaks of a future forever kingdom that he will rule, yet few believed him and many hated him for it as well. Joseph is sent by his father to look for his brothers, while Jesus is sent to us in the world by our heavenly father. Joseph's brothers, they conspired to kill him, they abused him, betrayed him for some silver coins. While the powerful around Jesus conspired to kill him, they abused him and they betrayed him for silver coins. Joseph, though he was in prison, he rose to a place of power and authority to the right hand of Pharaoh, while Jesus, imprisoned and crucified, rose again to sit at the right hand of the throne of God. And this is an important one to just pause on because Joseph, he was only second in command to Pharaoh, who was ultimately ultimately over Joseph and over everything. But Jesus, he shares all authority with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is actually the one in command. Every knee in Egypt bowed to Joseph, while every knee worldwide will one day bow to Joseph, not only on earth, but in heaven and under the earth. Joseph was the hope for a dying world of famine at that time, while Jesus is the only hope for a dying world forever, and he is the bread of life. Joseph showed mercy and forgave his betrayers. He saved his family and his nation, while Jesus shows mercy and forgives his betrayers, saving the world. We could spend just the next month going back and forth between these parallels. They're so rich, but they're so straightforward at the same time. And I hope you're getting the sense that this is not by mistake. These parallels are not there by mistake. God's word is woven together so intricately with such purpose to tell a well-crafted story. And we often use instead a lot of pop culture references to tell the story of Jesus. So we'll use the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, or Harry Potter. And these well-crafted analogies, they do bring something new to a familiar story. But the best retelling of Jesus' story is in Scripture itself. The story of Joseph is this masterful signpost that points to the promises of God being fulfilled through Jesus. So the one similarity that we're going to focus on this morning is the last one that was listed— the similarity of forgiveness and restoration that we see in Joseph and in Jesus. Joseph had a really rough life. I would like to say he had like a soap opera kind of story. He's loved by his dad, and then he's betrayed by his brothers. He's thrown in a ditch, and then he's sold into slavery so his brothers can make a little bit of money and feel better about themselves. They didn't kill their brother. He's a slave, and he ends up in prison, but then he makes the most of it. And his dreams interpretation, the gift that God gave him, it lands him as second in command to Pharaoh, 
But then his brothers come along, and they, they want to save themselves to buy some food. And Joseph, he just can't help but play with their emotion, and he tricks them in all these kinds of ways to make sure that they've really changed on the inside. And I just have to say, this is kind of typical brother stuff. If you have a brother or you are a brother yourself, they never make it easy. I once borrowed some mixed tapes, um, no, mixed CDs, not tapes, from my brother when he went away to college, um, and I lost all of them. And these were like very important to him. I didn't know it at the time, and he has never let me live it down. And that was something small, but Joseph, he realizes he can't take it anymore, this back and forth, so he confesses to his brothers who he really is, and they have this tearful reunion, and Joseph forgives them, and he reunites with his dad. And so by the end of Genesis 50, the last chapter of the book, Joseph's roller coaster life is coming to an end, and his brothers have been welcomed back into his home in Egypt, and basically everything that Joseph has, he gives to his brothers, and then some more. Yet when their father dies, his brothers, they're not sure that Jacob's hospitality is real. So they connive another scheme to lie to Joseph for their protection. And look down at, at Joseph, or Genesis 50, starting in verse 16. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sins, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph, when he spoke to, Joseph wept when he spoke to them. They're not leaving anything up to chance here. Like they need to make sure and verify that Joseph's forgiveness is real in case he changes his mind. These brothers are being just brothers again. And so as an act of continued grace, Joseph reiterates again to his brothers what he's already said to them. Verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, Joseph acknowledges that he is not God. God is the one in control. He is holding all things together, and he is the grand narrator of life. Joseph knows that his life is not his own, that though evil has been plotted against him and he has experienced harm, he recognizes that all parts of his life Good and wicked, they're all under the authority of God. Everything he has is from God. And that's a connection we'll see again in Romans 8. In Genesis 45, Joseph says, God sent me here to preserve life. The path to Egypt is not the work of the brothers, but it's directed by God himself. All the brothers did to him that Potiphar's wife accused him of, all of it was under the wise, governing hand of a gracious God who holds all of eternity in his hands. Don't miss that, that God holds it all. He holds the good. He holds the bad, the ugly. He holds our past and our present and our future. Everything rests on God, and we call this God's sovereignty. Now let's use that post-it note and jump to Romans 8 on 9.44. Now Romans 8, it speaks to this reality of living in a suffering world that's marked by brokenness. And Paul talks about the trouble and the persecution and the poverty and how Christians live in a world just like that. And he's not wrong. These past few weeks alone, they testify to this fact. Last Sunday, nine innocent people died in that helicopter crash. And we've seen how the coronavirus has just spread mass fear and racial division amongst people. And people in our own church family, I know, are deeply, deeply suffering. Let's reread what was read to us this morning by Maggie. Romans 8, beginning in verse 28. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. As Christians, we're not excluded from all of life's good and terrible circumstances. Awful things happen to people who love God. To some of you in this room, myself included. Paul is saying that not all circumstances in this life will be good to us. But even amid all these things, God's purposes prevail for good. You see, Joseph, he took this wide-angle lens at his life, at the whole picture. He refused to see just the betrayal of his brothers without also seeing the loyalty of his God. Sometimes our narrow focus, it cuts off the story before it's actually come to completion. Both the evil of this world and the faithfulness of God must remain in our view. Because everything that is good in our lives, the things that have turned the corner for the better, the blessings we have the new point of view from that terrible situation, it didn't happen on its own. If anything good happens, it's because God is working it together. Joseph knew this. He said this to his brothers. There is evil in this world, and Joseph experienced it time and time again, and Jesus endured it on the cross. Holding on to the promise that God is working everything for good, we should not ignore the sin and the evil that is in this world. On one of our recent Hume Lake trips, the camp director in front of a thousand high schoolers said, you, you are not enough. And to a room full of teenagers, that was brutal. They were very upset. And maybe some of you are too, I hope not. But uh, we decided his delivery could have changed a bit. But the message, the message was still true, that we are not enough. Yet, with Jesus, we are. On our own, our difficult circumstances that we face are crippling. Yet with God, he will make all things work together for good. But what is that ultimate good? Our idea of what making good from evil should look like, it often differs from God's plan. We want justice, or we want others to know the deep, deep pain that we're, we're sitting with. Or we just want things to go back to the way they were. For Paul, though, the ultimate good of all of these hardships is the work in conforming believers to Christ's image. Our lives are a testimony to looking more and more like Jesus. Yes, we are to emulate generosity and love and Jesus' kindness and his compassion, but we also share in his suffering. Philippians 3.10 says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Maybe this is not the message you'd hoped you'd hear this morning. But I pray, and I've been praying, that this is the message we all need to hear. That the good that results from our suffering, it makes us look more like Christ. And that, that in and of itself is the best news. Catherine Wolfe was a 26-year-old new mom with a six-month-old when she had a massive brain stem stroke. It's one of the biggest that her neurologist had ever seen. And after a 16-hour surgery, she made it out alive, but her quality of life was unknown. And as she slowly started to respond to commands, she had a board, a letter board, that she could type on that would speak aloud for her because she couldn't speak yet. And she would write over and over, I am the same on the inside. I am the same on the inside. But on the outside, her body was not. Seven months into rehab, and she had failed her ninth swallow test. 
And at Thanksgiving, a few weeks later, she was watching her in-laws play with her son, and she had this thought. God, you made a mistake. I should have died. I can't eat. I can't talk. I can't walk. I can't play with my son. My face is messed up. This is not right. But before that thought could even land, God reminded her, Catherine, I'm God and you're not. I don't make mistakes. There is purpose in all of this. Just wait and see. And things got better and she did walk and eat and talk again. She said it wasn't perfect, but she wasn't perfect before either. And Catherine, she went through absolute torture and she still is facing a lot of trials. But she said this, I'm grateful that the Lord has allowed me to experience suffering at an early age. The cross and the suffering of Christ doesn't appear beautiful at face value, but in the kingdom of God, we know it is the ultimate source of beauty because it meant that the end of the story is no longer sadness, pain, and death, but new life, and that is a beautiful thing. You see, by sharing in Christ's suffering and having a mind like Christ, as believers, we are gradually made into his likeness. This is the process of sanctification. The fellowship with Christ in his suffering, it is a prelude to sharing with him in his glory and seeing all things work together for good. Tim Keller says that every circumstance or all things God uses to shape, polish, melt, smooth, graft, sculpt, and cast and contour us into the master design or form, which is the Son of God. In the Old Testament, the people of God, they were often perplexed as why they had these trials, why they suffered. Yet the saints in the New Testament, they can trace their sufferings back to identify with Christ, and they actually rejoice that they are counted worthy to suffer in his name. And Paul was no exception. He had this flowchart almost of his sufferings, and they all, they all led back to Christ. In fact, Jesus didn't suffer so that we wouldn't suffer. He suffered so that when we suffer, we'll become like him. Let's keep reading Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. A few things on verse 31 first. This verse is not just a, a free reign pass for us to say, out of my way, God's on my side, so I'm always right. Like, we don't get that. We don't get that from this verse. What we do get is that a lot of the Old Testament says that God is always with or for his people. This is a part of God's nature we shouldn't take for granted. We have the God of the universe with us, in our midst, leading us and guiding us. We had three students on our high school trip who accepted Jesus recently for the first time, and each of them explained their experience as feeling embraced by God. They felt that God was with them in a way that was unlike any other hug or any other presence they'd ever experienced. This is the assurance that we live with as believers, that God is with us, that he is for us, even in the depths of our lowest valleys or on the highest mountaintops. And in this passage, like many others, Paul speaks with such conviction and such confidence. He doesn't seem wavered at all or deterred by his beliefs. How is that? How does he have that confidence? I want that. 
And I realize it's because God does not give empty promises. Verse 32 says, God did not spare his own son. He gave him up to the cross. And God didn't abandon him, but was with him. Paul confirms the reason we can be assured that God is for us is because our confidence rests on Christ, his advocacy in these four acts. Jesus died and secured the removal of sin's guilt. Second, he was raised to life and is able to bestow life on those who trust him for their salvation. Third, Jesus was exalted to God's right hand with all power given to him both in heaven to represent us there and on earth where he is more than a match for our adversaries. And fourth, he intercedes for us at the throne of grace, whatever our needs may be. None of these things, none of these four things you or I could do. And none of these things Joseph could do. Without Christ, we are not enough in this world or the next. They're going to put on the screen a parallel of Genesis 50.20 and Romans 8.28. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. These verses, this, this isn't easy stuff. When you're in the midst of suffering and pain, this is not usually the message you want or even need to hear. So if you're already thinking of someone to text this verse to or send this sermon to, I know you are. Thank you for your honesty. Right? Um, let me just advise you, maybe don't. Maybe not yet. Maybe just wait. It might not be what they need to hear or can even hear in this moment. I know for myself in deep moments of my own grief, I couldn't hear this. It would have just gone right by me, and it might have even hurt more than it could have helped. The truth that God uses everything in this life for his good and perfect plan is something we can stand on. This truth builds the foundation of trusting God when our world is good and when our world is hurting. God has demonstrated time and time again that he is trustworthy and that he is faithful to deliver us. We see that Joseph waited 22 years to see God's plan come to fruition. At 17, he was sold into slavery. And then his brothers came to Egypt to buy food, and he was almost 40 years old. All the while, God was with Joseph. As a slave, Genesis 39.3 says, the Lord was with him. When he was in prison, Genesis 39.30 says, the Lord was with him. All the while, God is with his people. So instead of preaching to the hurting, sit with those who are mourning. Be present with those who are grieving. Whether they know Christ in their hearts or have yet to come to receive him, we all need that reminder that God is with us and that he is for us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph sent out by his father in love. You see, Jesus didn't just come up with a plan to save the world from dying the way Joseph did. Jesus was the plan. His body and his blood for our salvation. While Joseph endured sin and suffered and found a way to, in the end to forgive and show mercy to his brothers, Jesus bore the weight of our sin and our suffering, knowing full well that the cross, burial, and resurrection would forever remove the stain of sin and offer salvation, not just for those at that time in that moment, but for eternity. Joseph's life, it points to someone much bigger and much better. When I was in a youth group, we played this game called Bigger or Better. And we would get an ordinary item, like a book or a paper clip, and we had 30 minutes to run around to businesses or homes and try and trade that item for something bigger or better. 
and you never knew what you were going to get, but you just really wanted to top it so that when you came back together, you won. And I've heard of people getting dishwashers and desks and even a flat screen TV. So Joseph's story is traded in for something much bigger and much better, Jesus. We can see the benefits of Joseph's story, but when we receive the God of the universe as a man who died and rose again for the forgiveness of sins in order to make right relationship between him and us, that, that is absolutely better. As I wrote and I edited my sermon this week, I went back and forth about how to put myself in the story. When I teach the students, especially the middle schoolers, it's helpful for them to see themselves in the story, otherwise I've completely lost them. But as we get older, that practice begins to shape a lot of our biblical understanding. We always put ourselves at the center of scripture and see how it fits around us, how scripture works around our lives. And I was challenged this week that maybe that's not always the best option. When we put ourselves at the center, we lose sight of the biblical truth about God, that God is faithful and just to restore and redeem all that is in this world. The question is, do you trust him? Do you trust the only guide worthy of leading our lives? Do you trust that even the most evil acts, the crucifixion of the only person who ever lived a life undeserving of punishment, that even that was under God's good hand? It was for you and me to receive eternal life, life to the fullest, here and now and for all eternity. This is what this table represents. This table is an active and visual reminder that what man used for evil, God uses for good. So this morning as we come to the table, taste and see as the Lord is good. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website 